Hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 77 and I'm very pleased to bring back to you uh, Dr. Sean Arendt from Rutgers, uh, who for many of you, if you recall, uh, we did uh, an episode called Test Don't Guess, episode 58. Um, and um, I'm going to explain why I've got Sean back uh, in a minute. But uh, hi, Sean, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing well, all right. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great, as we were just discussing off air. Um, in a matter of only a few weeks, you'll be yep. um, over here in the UK uh, to come speak at our ISSN London International Conference on April 16th, 17th. Um, I'll mention more about that at the end of this podcast because um, I know folks will want to uh, potentially come uh, if they haven't already booked their place. So, um, Sean, just before I get into why I've asked you to come back, um, if you could uh, just give us a quick overview as to who you are, just in case uh, folks haven't yet heard that podcast. Sure, no problem. I'm still wondering why you asked me back to. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, so I'm a, uh, I'm a professor at Rutgers University. I'm the director of the Center for Health and Human Performance there. I've actually been at Rutgers since 2002. I uh, got my PhD at Arizona State. Uh, much of what I focus on uh, in terms of my background is exercise endocrinology, uh, but especially the stress response. I think um, one of the things, and I think one of the reasons you and I get along so well is while most of what I do is on the research side, we do a huge amount of application as well because we work mm. very closely uh, with many of the teams at Rutgers, uh, men's and women's soccer, field hockey, women's swimming, swimming and diving. We've done some stuff with wrestling, with, with American football. Uh, we're continuing to work with women's lacrosse now as well. Um, so we're doing a lot of that stuff as well as with some of the professional teams in the area. Uh, the New Jersey Devils for ice hockey. Uh, there's potential we're going to start some things with the NFL this year as, as well. Um, so that's a little bit about who I am and, and what we're trying to build here at Rutgers. Uh, it's a really exciting time for us. Our new center just opened uh, last October, and it's been absolutely phenomenal. We just hosted uh, our third annual uh, Rutgers ISSN conference this year cool. uh, with about 50 to 160 people at that. So uh, things are going well, and uh, I always enjoy being able to share these kinds of things with you because of some of the work that you guys are doing too. Yeah, well, as people know, um, those of those that have hung around throughout um, the past couple of years have been doing this. It, you know, th th this sort of developed as a tool for my doctorate, my um, professional doctorate. And my interest is in, you know, is in within the realms of exercise physiology and performance nutrition. But I'm um, coming at this from the perspective of um, application and, in particular, practice. And what I'm really interested in, as everyone knows, because it's become my sort of catchword, is context. But as I mentioned, I'm, I'm now only weeks away from finishing writing up my, my thesis now. And um, I've really come to feel that there's um, an important significance to the relationship between not only the knowledge, you know, like, like the knowledge we learn from textbooks, what we're taught in the classroom, um, of course, context it's you know that knowledge is is largely irrelevant unless you have an appropriate context for that knowledge but also and what i'm finding and what i've been writing up um this past few months now is about the role of practice itself and how practice evokes additional knowledge that helps to manipulate that knowledge context relationship and that's why in this podcast i really i like to talk to guys like yourself who um, have this huge strength of 
of um, ac- you know academic uh, knowledge behind you, um, you know uh, laboratory based research that sort of thing, but also whereby um, you're also applying it in the field. And that, and as you know, and as we'll discuss in this podcast, and as we discussed in episode fifty eight in test don't guess. Um, you know, there's a big difference between what we find in the lab, what we hear in the classroom, and actually what happens in the trenches, where as coaches, as practitioners, as as athletes themselves will find um, in, quote-unquote, the real world. So um, the the, the reason why um, I wanted to get you back, Sean, is because you bribed me. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, damn, I gave that one away. No, the reason why um, I wanted to get you back was... Uh, we, we, we discussed the role of, um, use, you know, the use of physiological testing to inform practice in episode 58 and, um, everyone that's listening, you, you need to listen to that episode. If you haven't already, it it will play a role in what you get out of this particular podcast. But there is, um, there is one area in, in testing, of course, that most people will be familiar with. And that is this, this idea of body composition testing, which will define, and get into in a minute um, but it is something which is very much misunderstood um, a lot of people take uh, various body composition tests for granted and assume that it's all super accurate and that sort of thing and of course that has a massive influence in um, the assumptions that we make and ultimately the recommendations we will give which is you know at the end of the day we we, we want results we want our athletes to win we want them we want our clients to have outcomes where they achieve their goals. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of test, don't guess, we also want to make sure that um, it's accurate testing so that it's not um, misleading um, everyone. Um, and I know um, on the ISSN conference that you're um, speaking at in a few weeks here in April, um, we're going to talk, or you're going to talk about um, nutrition and body composition and um, you know, the relevance that that has to um, uh, performance or, or, you know, just what it means to have a look, which is not the same thing as what it takes to achieve performance. But um, let, let's, let's just get back to uh, um, some basics here where I think we should define what we mean by body composition. And I've asked several experts to do this before, but um, this, this is a topic I think that's well worth getting into. So Sean, tell us about body composition. What actually does that term mean? Well, I mean, at its, I think at its simplest, and I think that's the, the, the best way to start, is when, when we're relaying body composition for the most part, and, and especially what athletes and coaches would understand, it is very much just a two-compartment model where it's fat-free mass and fat mass. Okay, so basically fat mass is exactly what it sounds like. It's all of your body's adipose tissues. Um, that could be subcutaneous. It could be uh, more of the internal visceral fat. And then you got your fat-free mass, which in the two-component model is going to describe your skeletal muscle tissue, um, your skeleton itself in terms of bone, uh, and all the connective tissues as well. And then certainly within that, obviously, we have to understand the role that water plays in all of this. And I'm sure you and I will touch on that in a little mm, bit we will. in terms of uh, the role of the hydration process and aspects um, then we can move even beyond that. We can start breaking it down into a multi-component model. So now we could be talking about the fat mass versus muscle mass versus skeletal or bone mass. 
and then certainly the other tissue, whether that's the connective tissue or however we want to define that. And and I think from its most simplistic, you know, trying to focus as much as possible probably today, especially if we want to put it into both context and application, is focusing on that fat mass versus fat-free mass. Um, I've always found that to be the easiest way if you start getting into the multi-component model, with the exception of maybe adding in the bone density stuff. Um, you know, it's a little bit hard for... Uh, for athletes and coaches to fully grasp what the, the point of all of it is. Yeah. And again, it also depends on what you're actually measuring based on the techniques that we'll talk about. Um, you know, but, but I think when all is said and done, you know, as you alluded to with the conference coming up, you know, I am going to discuss, you know, performance versus physique nutrition. You know, are we at a point now where one's the antithesis of the other? Um, because just because you look good doesn't mean you function good. You know, and I think that, you know, as we talk about the body composition stuff today, there's there's a difference between being stage ready for a bodybuilding competition and being field ready to be a high performing athlete. And and that's the reality of what drives a lot of the work we do in my lab, especially when we're working with athletes, is I want maximal performance. Absolutely. And you know, Sean, it goes the other way. It was like I, I was saying to my wife the other day, just because I look bad doesn't mean I function bad. <laughs> That's it. You're exactly, no, seriously. I mean, there's plenty of, there's plenty of athletes I've worked with where you're like, wow, you would never pick them out as a high level athlete, but damn, if they don't have the technical skill to pull it off, yeah. you know, and you're, but you're right. I mean, on both ends, it's, uh, <laughs> um, although I think you're selling yourself a bit short, oh, well, uh, yeah. but I do think that yeah. um, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I think that that has to guide to me anyway, that has to guide any discussion of body composition yeah. uh, because I think at the end of the day, it has to be about um, what does it do? You know, it's not just about how you look. Mm. It is about what do you do? You know, and, I, and to, that's really where uh, the discussion seems to drive when you're trying to figure out why it's important in the first place. Well, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a great example of where context is important, you know, because if, if all we're going to do is try and strive to achieve some number or percentage on a chart, and we're going to, we'll, we'll unravel all of this later, but, yeah, you know, that means something very different if you're a sumo wrestler, um, you're a running back or, a, you know, in rugby, a back of some sort, uh, or a forward, or if you're... If you want to look good naked, th these are all different things, and and yet, right. and yet, some people will not take that into account when they're trying to determine what recommendations they're going to give, or you know, when when I mean the classic example, of course, is I mean we're not even talking sport here. We're talking, you know, you're in a doctor's office, they weigh you, and without even even thinking about the information, oftentimes they'll just look at that chart, BMI, bang, you're overweight, you're obese. You know, even though you've got a six-pack. We, we had a famous story um, me. last year. How to you? Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Um, we had a famous story, and it was out in the papers or in a London Metro paper last year where a female bodybuilder, and we're talking, uh -huh. you know, seriously stacked, no, no fat, yeah. you know, highly muscular, she was um, went in for a medical, and she was told uh, that she was obese. Um, yeah. And all and all you got to do is look. Now, the, the the reason why I think this is an important discussion is because we also go the other way. We look at these testing methodologies, and we go right. Dexa gold standard. Um, yeah. You stand on a bioimpedance scale, and whatever that number says, that's it. That's that that's you. Um, whatever the guy in the gym with the plastic calipers tells you you are, that's it. No. 
It isn't. Um, you know, for the for the sake of the listeners, we we will we will get into this and, and discuss um, why this is so important. Because in all the research that you look at, there are a couple of words that are used, um, which is essentially a variation on the word estimate. And I think yeah. that's important when we talk about body composition testing, when we talk about methodologies to estimate body composition. At no point has anyone said that this is fact. This is what you are. But that's where we get lost. And that's why I I am so keen to try and differentiate knowledge from context and, and the relevance to practice. Because that isn't happening. Particularly when messages are um, given out either in the classroom or on social media by all those experts um, or, you know, in, in the peer-reviewed publication that is Twitter. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> um, there are there are an amazing number of experts when it comes to uh, body fat and other physiological uh, uh, events, and I and I, I swear we could probably track the uh, development of expertise directly to the time course of Twitter. But it's remarkable. Well, it, it, it ten years old apparently. A few days ago, Twitter was ten years old. That's amazing. Isn't uh, it? But I've never seen some experts in my life. I, I mean, you know, I I now this is it's relevant. You mentioned that because that is where people get knowledge from um, yep. social media and 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 so on. And I think we have an opportunity to set the record straight here. So, you know, you've discussed here what body composition is. Um, I think we also need to differentiate the relevance of body composition to health um, and then to performance. And then, um, and then what we'll do is we'll spend some time talking about actual testing methods themselves because that's the eye-opening okay. area, I think. Yeah. Um, but I tell agree. us, tell us about. I mean, you know, health. What what's the relevance here? So, look at the end of the day, you know, and, and I say this to my classes as well. If it was, if our concern about body fat was just about how you looked, who cares, mm. right? That it, that's that that's more of a perception issue than anything. The, the problem comes with the other issues that go along with high or low body fat. And I think, and fairly, you know, rightly so, we get very caught up on the obesity side of the body composition discussion because of the high prevalence of it. There's no question. But one of the things we'll come back to and, and that needs to be included in this is the consequence of too low body fat as well. Mm -hmm. And that, in the athletic area, both of these have real considerations in terms of what we need to address with athletes. Uh, as well as coaches in terms of what their demands are. But I think from a health standpoint, when we start seeing, you know, and and, and I think the, the number most people are going to be familiar with, everybody is probably familiar with BMI, you know, body mass index. Um, everybody needs to understand that body mass index is not an indicator of body fatness. It doesn't predict it. Body mass index is a screening tool not a diagnostic tool. So going back to your example of the female bodybuilder who was told she was obese, it's because she walks in the doctor's office, height versus weight, oh my God, you're too fat. And it's, you know, <laughs> the problem is anytime you can take a, you know, uh, a bodybuilder, uh, a linebacker in the NFL in the US or some of these, you know, phenomenal rugby players and they would be classified as overweight or obese based on BMI, there's a problem, you know, and so, with that being said, you know, considering the large number of people that are sedentary in the world, <laughs> BMI is a useful estimate for degree of overweight and obesity, but it's not necessarily indicative of over fat. 
And I think what we have to consider when we're dealing with the health consequences of body composition is twofold. One, when body fat is too high, uh, certainly there's other health markers that get compromised when we see changes in uh, lipid profiles, HDLs to LDLs, total cholesterol, triglycerides. Uh, we see changes in terms of metabolic profile that might be uh, indicative of metabolic syndrome. Uh, insulin resistance and things like that, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, all of these things are tied to the obesity issue, uh, which are the health consequences that go along with having too high of a body fat, but more specifically to the behaviors that got you to that point. And I think that's what the important part is because, you know, you deal with anybody from general population to an athlete and, and if there are changes that need to be made in body composition, there also has to be a, and here's how you do it, that goes along with it, not just, oh, you need to bring your body fat down. So that's a pretty critical consideration. The other part, though, too, is beyond just the body fat part is the muscle part. You know, when we're talking about lean mass, <clears throat> we know there are protective functions of high lean mass. <clears throat> so if you're carrying more muscle, it's been tied to everything from changes in risk of prostate cancer <clears throat> to changes in other cancers to protective uh, metabolic functions. And so you know, as we're looking at these fat mass and fat-free mass components, those become useful as we start talking about things like the, the role of, of bone density in all of this for prevention of osteoporosis. Again, that's all part of the body composition part of the equation. So, you know, ultimately, you know, from a health and, and, and overall function standpoint, the fat and it's, it's tied to metabolic disorders and, and endocrine disruptors, uh, muscle and its role in protective functions as well as the problems with having too low of muscle mass, uh, but then also having too low of body fat. <clears throat> Again, the same things that we typically see with endocrine disruption at the high end, we're going to get at the low end too, where now, whether it's LH and FSH secretion, whether it's normal menstrual cycle, uh, low testosterone in males, things like that, there's there's all these other factors that go into it too. So yeah, there. If it was just about how you looked, I could really I could really care less. It's it's about the physical functions that go with it that create the problem when we're dealing with why body composition is of such relevance for overall health. Yeah, I I mean, there's a lot in there actually, Sean, and um, you know, I always teach my students that this idea of any testing method is is really or should really be viewed as as like a satellite as it relates to a gps for positioning you need at least three satellites and ideally you need a few more to get an accurate fix in the same way that body composition isn't just body fat there are many things that make up the body and and if listeners refer back to the episode i can't remember the number but um it was with dr Kirsty Elliott sale and we talked about reds you know relative energy deficiency syndrome um you know the problem there is when you get into an energy deficit to lose weight sure if the only thing that you're going to use is your you know uh, visual appraisal of of body composition and and your you know your your assumption of successful of a successful outcome is suddenly seeing your six pack you're going to um, mistake or miss a few things, um, which includes this idea that that if you're losing fat, that's not the only thing that you're losing. You're losing other things. You might be losing bone, like you said. You yeah. might be losing muscle. Um, you might be losing essential tissue reserves of nutrients, um, minerals. There's all sorts of things. You might be losing health, to keep it 
simple. Um, and if and if one just spends any time on Instagram, you, you know, you can see that the obsession for the look is the overriding focus that people have. And if that's all that we focus on, I think, you know, it's a dangerous thing to do. Um, and again, it's a message I repeat many times. You know, when we're talking about athletes, we're also talking about human beings. Um, right. And um, I think we, you know, we often miss that point. So anyway, bringing us back to um, the point of uh, this discussion. So um, you, you've made it clear that there's a health implication but what about a performance implication yeah I, so there's so again we'll go to both extremes with the high and the low body fat obviously and this this i've always found it easier to discuss the the extremes to bring us back to the central portion which is then okay then what happens when you're in this optimal range um you know and by the way just to backtrack a little bit when you're talking about instagram i swear the selfie has become um the the death of credibility in the health and fitness industry um it's uh yeah, yeah. That's, a whole, that's a whole other podcast in itself i've tried, um, anyway. I've tried doing selfies i i fail miserably or maybe i haven't failed ultimately then it's 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 the it's the constant physique selfies that, that oh yeah after, no, no, no. like it's a little bit ridiculous but anyway yeah. um so uh, performance. Mm, performance. <laughs> so here's here's the trade-off. Okay, from a performance standpoint, let's deal with low body fat first. There's a certain point, and the funny thing is, uh, you know, we would love to attach a definitive percentage to when this becomes a problem, but it's very much individualized, and you also have to take into account energy availability when figuring out how this is going to affect other physical functions. Um, obviously, that that energy, you know, that goes beyond what you expend with exercise and what's available for all their functions after that, but when we're dealing with low body fat, the one problem, especially in female athletes, this is where it's, it's most prevalent in terms of the, the type of discussion and discourse we get, is at some point, you know, given the menstrual cycle and the protection of, of, of certain functions, when you're in a massive either caloric deficit or extreme strain on the body, the one thing the female body is going to basically do is say, all right, well, you know what? There's no way I'm going to support a fetus under these conditions. So guess what? Let's hold off on anything that can cause that. Mm. So now you start to get menstrual disruption. You get changes in estrogen and progesterone in terms of relative concentrations, irregular fluctuations throughout the month. And 28-day cycle turns into a 38 or 39 or 42-day cycle or no cycle. Now, the problem is... While you may be decreasing body fat and maybe you don't notice a performance deficit at first because of that, estrogen and other hormones play a critical role in calcium regulation for bone density as well. So that can be a problem. Not only that, but if your body is going into a situation where you're depriving it of the necessary energy requirements to meet your prime recovery needs – at some point, you're going to start to see a deterioration in performance because you're not able to match what you're putting out versus what you're taking in. And that might be okay short term, but as this continues, we have problems. And so that'll be useful to pick up on. And at the same time, I love tracking muscle mass throughout the season for that exact same reason to know whether or not my athlete is breaking down or maintaining while they're in competition phase, you know, throughout the periodization cycle. So I think that's really important. At the flip side of that, in terms of high body fats for athletes, one of the biggest things I worry about outside of just performance is injury. 
all right, if I can't keep you on the field, your performance is clearly not going to be very good because you're not contributing. And the thing you have to realize is not only will excess body fat certainly slow you down. Can you imagine running a marathon carrying a 20-pound backpack? Now put that in the context of an excess 20 pounds of body fat. Uh, you know, if you're talking roughly eight or nine kilos, that, that's, that's a lot of weight um, that you're just kind of dragging along because people forget that muscle mass is metabolically active. It kind of carries its own weight. Fat, not so much, you know, and that's just going to add a, an additional anchor. But I think at the, at the high end as well, let's take, for example, uh, a female soccer player, a football player, um, goes up to head a ball, comes back down, plans to land and cut right as they land to go after the ball again. The problem is you have all this excess weight coming down on that joint as well as you turn and pivot. All right, now I have to start worrying about the translational forces through the knee boom, there goes the ACL. Mm. You know, and I think that the extra weight does play an injury risk in all of this as well. So, you know, it, it, at some point we want to prevent these extreme lows and these extreme highs and find this workable medium that allows for great performance without sacrificing health <clears throat> and without adding too much weight that you don't maximize what you're doing. And, and I think for each sport, it's going to have its own, uh, I guess we should almost say sweet spot in terms of ranges that we've established. But then even within that, you're going to have athletes that function at different levels as well. Yeah, I, I always think it's interesting um, when you start considering, right, okay, I'm going to get this athlete super lean. I'm going to do whatever it takes yeah. to get them lean. Is to also consider what are the negative consequences? It's that idea of, as I'm yeah. going to sit here and construct a plan, I need to do my needs analysis on my athlete. I also need to um, consider what are the consequences because sometimes it's best to do nothing because <laughs> um, the risk, you know, it, getting that, that athlete leaner may on paper make them look like a better athlete. They may look literally like a better athlete, but actually they won't be able to hack it. Yeah, and I think some of that depends on a, how you go about it, B, when you go about it, mm. and C, identifying what the other needs are at the same time. Like you always say, context, right? Mm. And I think that um, one of the biggest mistakes I see is it's one thing to want to get an athlete leaner because you know that from a performance standpoint, they're carrying a little extra weight, it's either hard on their joints, it, they'd be a little faster if they didn't, but they're just a little high on the on the range, whatever it is. But to try to do that in season is one of the biggest mistakes I see. You know, I mean, trying to get an athlete to purposely lose body fat while they're in season. I mean, to me, that's what the off season's for. This is where identifying priorities becomes very important um, to prevent breakdown in season. Uh, so certainly some athletes will naturally lose some body fat throughout the course of a season, depending on what kind of shape they came in in the first place in terms of fitness. Uh, but ideally for me, if I can manage to maintain them as best as possible in season, I think we're doing a much better job. You know, but I think you're right. Like, what are the what are the end consequences of all this, and why are you trying to do it? And I think that's ultimately where the question comes in: is you know, do you want them to look more like an athlete or be more like an athlete? And I think that those those are important considerations that often get lost in all of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it, I mean, it's understandable. It's because we we often deal sure. with things in isolation, don't we? We 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 rarely have the luxury of being able to stand back and look at the bigger picture. But we must always consider that. Um, I mean, I see it a lot in my own practice, where I have a lot of um, you know boxers or 
um, MMA UFC fighters coming yep. in and and they're like right you know I'm I'm, I'm about I'm gonna go off to fight, to go to fight camp um, uh, for the next six weeks and then I'm gonna fight you know my fight um, but I also need to lose you know six kilos of body fat and I'm like hang on yeah. you should already be in shape right <laughs> the best way right. to be in shape in season is to be in shape off season <laughs> yeah I completely agree and that's and that's where the priorities come in right that's mm. where it's <clears throat> identifying that this needs to happen early you know because i mean you per, i mean i love the fact that you know we're we're doing some more uh, pro boxer that's just started doing some testing in our lab and some nutritional stuff and anyway it's interesting though because you're right you deal with the situation where they see camp as the time to get in shape for the fight and really camp is just the time to get ready for that fight in other mm. words you should have already been fit I should be able to use that eight or 10 weeks or so to fine tune the things we need to do without having to have you lose uh, massive amounts of body fat. Cause it's probably not going to happen in a good way, you know? And, and I think that, you know, the same applies for athletes that come in, in the U S for those of your listeners that aren't based in the U S with college sports, for example, you know, and university sports over here are very big, especially division one sports, which Rutgers is a part of when we play our fall sports. So for example, uh, both men's and women's soccer, field hockey, uh, American football, things like that. When men's and women's soccer and field hockey come in, for example, they only have about a two-week preseason before they play the first game. If the athletes have waited until the beginning of preseason to get in shape and figure that's where they'll lose the weight, they're going to break down. They got two weeks to do this. It's a massive overload on the system. We need them to have been ready in June or July before they ever come back in August Otherwise, it's it's a constant management process through the season to figure out a way for them not to deteriorate any further. You know, and I think we get that from time to time where you get the athletes that aren't uh, committed enough or don't understand what goes into it. And they come back a little out of shape, a little overweight, and they just figure they'll play themselves back into performance. And, sure. you know, all of a sudden halfway through the season, they're broken. And I think that, that that idea, you know, what you're talking about with this idea that <laughs> you should already be in shape, um, you're exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's one of the biggest uh, flaws I see and one of the things they do to really kind of screw themselves over. Well, I mean, I always tell my guys, uh, it's a fight camp. It's not a fat camp. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you're right. I, 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 now, this is a perfect segue because um, this brings us back to the point of testing because our motto is always test, don't guess. And one, and one of the benefits of regular testing um, is you're able to constantly assess your, your athlete, your client against that baseline and those subsequent tests and follow-ups and 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 by virtue of that you're able to catch catch them early before their body composition gets to a point where they have gotten um over fat or they've lost muscle mass and so on but the reason why i'm particularly keen to talk about this stuff today is there is an assumption that the testing itself is accurate so um that then leads me to want to ask you about the testing methods itself and um, I don't think we've got time to get into every component here but um, sure. I think if, if we if, if we first go back to defining how it is we actually test body composition um, and starting with what we call the reference methods by which all the other methods are compared to so um, you know what, what are what are these reference or criterion methods in body composition testing 
Yeah, and I think um, what people need to understand is there's both direct and indirect ways to do this. And, and really, um, almost everything we talk about with reference criterion are, are indirect methods. It's an estimation no matter what. What we're looking for is the best estimation. If everybody, if, if somebody really, really, really wants to know their exact body fat, there's really one really good way to do that, and that is through autopsy which I don't highly recommend. So I think unless you're willing to be dissected, uh, you're going to be estimating your body fat. You know, to some degree, MRI and CT scan are coming up a little bit, but not exactly easily available or even there's still questions about how, um, how complete those are as a direct method. But when we look at our criterions, you know, basically by most accounts, especially by mo most textbook, um, there are three methods that get lumped into what, and we could argue whether there's a true gold standard or not, but three methods that tend to get lumped into this concept of a gold standard, the thing by which all other methods are compared. And those would be their DEXA, dual electron X-ray absorptiometry. Uh, we've got underwater weighing, hydrostatic weighing. And you've got the BOD pod or air displacement plethysmography. Those tend to be the three commonly accepted or refuted <laughs> gold standards uh, as you would have it. And... And each of those use different techniques. So, for example, with DEXA, it's using um, a scanning property with low-level x-rays to be able to detect uh, everything from bone density to um, an estimation of lean mass and body fat. You've got underwater weighing that's based on Archimedes' principle that, uh, that fat is more buoyant than muscle. Uh, and so fat's going to float, muscle will sink in terms of density compared to water. And then you've got air displacement plethysmography, which is based on the, on Pissot's law, um, which uh, has to do with pressure volume relationships. And when we're dealing with that, we're identifying the fact that air behaves differently around different kinds of tissues. And so in a sealed chamber <clears throat> using sound waves, you should be able to detect uh, changes and differences in terms of the, the nature of the body tissue itself. So each of those three are probably more of your your, your three kind of, kind of common laboratory standards mm. that you'll see more of than anything else. And then you've got your indirect ones that come off of there as well. So, you know, going back to your question of what, what's kind of our standards, uh, I would I would currently put those three there. And I will tell you, though, one that is um, rapidly increasing in terms of its recognizability as a potentially very good uh, standard is also ultrasound. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been reading up a lot on this, and the thing that really yeah. comes out that I find really interesting on, on these methods is is just how um, they're not really the gold standard. I mean, when you compare it right. to, you know, um, chemical uh, uh, yeah. dilution, uh, um, you know, d dissolution, etc. Um, right. You know, there are some serious problems with these methodologies. Um, yeah. So, for example, we mentioned... Uh, Air displacement plethysmography. I actually said that. Um, little things like um, having some moisture on the skin, or yeah. um, using um, a rubber rather than um, different type of, of hat, for example, can have right. an impact. Um, w whether you truly exhaled um, sufficient air, um, you know, X-ray, uh, uh, DEXA, uh, etc. Anyway, there's there's things about each of these. But one thing I find interesting is. To turn, is thinking about these testing methods on the basis of what they're really good at testing, as in which aspect of body composition are they good for? So, um, so DEXA, because DEXA is the one here. In, I don't know about over there, but in the UK, there's a lot of people talking about, oh, you know, DEXA is the gold standard. Everything we do compares to DEXA. However, 
There are things that Dex is good at assessing and there's things that Dex is maybe not because as you mentioned, it's still an estimate. Um, right. And then obviously that goes for a computer, blah, blah, blah. T take us through that a bit. Yeah, so with DEXA, where it really got its, um, and, and rightly so, its, its sort of notoriety, rise to fame, whatever you want to have it, is, is really from a bone density standpoint. It was really designed very well to assess bone density. Um, so from the standpoint of detecting osteoporosis and things like that, it was, it was very good. Now, DEXA is interesting, and I think even before going just into DEXA, I think you brought up a really interesting point, which is, you know, each one of these is uh, susceptible to certain sources of error, and I would say that the better you can do to control those sorts of error, because many of them are within the experimenter's control, um, then the better these measures get. But if you're sloppy about how you do it, and some of them are susceptible to subject error too. So, for example, underwater weighing, which we'll talk about. Um, you know, there's, there's certain things you need to be very consistent in how you apply these. And because they are estimates, the one caveat I throw out all the time is, it's not about getting the absolute right number in terms of this is most definitely your body fat percentage. It's also about detecting relative changes. So using the same method with the same procedures each time is also critical. And so while we want the most precise method we can find, um, we also want one that has a high reliability from test to test because that's where you're detecting change. So, you know, we can talk about, is there a meaningful difference between 21% body fat and 20% body fat? Oh my God, one method underestimated by 1%, is that gonna throw everything off? You know, if we're looking at relative change, maybe not. Now that's where it gets interesting with DEXA because the way the scanning works, one thing I like about DEXA, by the way, one thing I do like about DEXA is that visually, in terms of the way the scan works, you can also identify regional fat patterning differences. Where are you carrying the subcutaneous fat and things mm -hmm. like that? So that's nice. I mean, honestly, from compared to bod pod or underwater weighing in particular, that's a, that's a very good function. Um, the problem is not everybody's qualified to do a DEX or to run it. Uh, we have actually legally here in New Jersey, uh, in the U.S., state by state, there's different requirements in terms of who can or cannot use the DEXA as a diagnostic test. Mm. Um, in New Jersey, you need an x-ray technician involved in the process. So it gets a little interesting. And I know a lot of people that um, use DEXA in their research that, that I see some pretty wonky results from. You know, but interestingly, one thing that DEXA is very susceptible to is carbohydrate loading. Um, they've actually shown that you know, and there were rumors about a researcher over in the U.S. in particular who found pretty remarkable changes in body composition with certain training programs. And the supposition and some things we'd heard from some students is that they would carb load the subjects before they retested on DEXA. Well, that's going to inflate your lean muscle because what it's picking up on, in addition to pulling the water into the muscle, is that overall loading. That's going to change the fat mass to fat free mass type of ratio as well. So. Nothing is perfect. You know, uh, Sean, just quickly, as you mentioned that, um, that came up in some of the research I looked at. And um, okay. uh, glycogen supercompensation, we'll call it, yep. also affects um, yes, skin yes. folds. Um, it affects the way a caliper uh, interacts with um, the, the, the skin fold. That's right. It, it impacts the pliability of the skinfold itself. Yeah. That's right. Pressibility. Yep. Yeah. And also will affect bioimpedance. And we'll talk about all that in a minute. But, yes, um, that's but, right. You know, these are things that people are listening to and going, oh, my God, I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. If you, really, if you really want to show a ketogenic diet works, do DEXA. 
Car- oh, deplete them and then carbload them right at the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, or uh, like we, okay, so at the University of Middlesex, where I, um, yep. uh, I work uh, part of the time, um, we have a, a DEXA, okay? Yep. Um, and we've got a professional rugby team on site. Um, half these guys don't even fit on the DEXA. Correct. Yeah, that's so a what, good point. So, I mean, I, I know the answer to this, but just tell us about that. What, what, what happens if we're talking about some big guys? And it doesn't have to be a big guy. It could just be a very overweight person isn't necessarily going to fit. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think the last I saw, most DEXAs at the upper end are designed to accommodate somebody up to about 120 kilos, Yeah. Um, which if you think about it is – I mean, it's not like it's small, but that's not that big, especially if you're dealing with somebody who's truly obese. So so there's a number of DEXs um, that actually only do uh, segmental scans. So it might just be uh, lower limb, things like that, versus full body scans. So, you know, if people are going to look and have a DEXA done, also know which version of it they're doing. Is it full body? Is it segmental uh, in terms of how they're doing it? Um, but you're right. It, it's, um, you know, look, one nice thing about a DEXA is from a subject standpoint, it is super easy. Your job is to lay there. Mm. All right, that's nice, which means you minimize subject error in all this. Mm. Um, but in terms of investigator skill, in terms of reading the output, in terms of understanding and and you know appropriately p- applying the correction factors, like it's it's not exactly body comp for dummies necessarily. So you know I think that that people have to be aware of that as well. But sure, from the standpoint of the subject, and I mean we run into this with different methods. I'll say we have a bod pod in our lab for ADP and. Uh, we can fit some pretty big people in there. You can actually squeeze. You can actually squeeze quite a bit into a box. Like a sardine. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but it's interesting, you know. But but again, that's certainly a problem. And then you know, as you go from dexa to hydrostatic weighing, now you've got a huge reliance on subject skill hmm. because the subject has to be able to breathe out all of their air before they go underwater. Have any extra bubbles in their clothing completely gone? And I'll tell you what: if you have somebody that feels at all claustrophobic. The sensation of being underwater with no lung, with no air in your lungs, is very discomforting to them, and you might have to repeat it many, many times to get two consistent readings. Um, so, when done correctly, the standard error of the estimate is fairly small. When done incorrectly, it's as much as fifty percent. You know, so these are the things people need to be aware of: is is what what goes into the process as well. But yeah, with DEXA, um, the size of the subject, uh, the even how time of day can affect it. So even if you're getting body comp done, we try to make sure with our athletes, we're doing it at the same time with them each time we do it as well, just to account for even minor fluctuations that might occur with body water. Um, so all of those become really important considerations. And also there's a difference between um, brand. Um, yes. See, one of the things that I don't like about DEXA and I don't want this to just be an indictment of Dexa because it does have its strengths. There's no questions, but mm. it may not be my preference. Um, but one thing that's hard about it is the different manufacturers, there's been shown to be inconsistency from brand to brand because they each use their own proprietary algorithms that are not disclosed in terms of the the, the calculation process. So it's like even if, if I don't know the algorithms and many of the bioelectrical impedance scales are guilty of this as well, uh, Tanita is notorious for this. Um, but if, if I don't know what the formula calculation is, how do I compare it from equipment to equipment? It, it's nearly impossible to do. Yeah, and, and also as you read the DEXA, you know, the literature on, on DEXA, one also learns that over and above bone density, which is, it is really good for, 
Um, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's better at assessing fat in obese people and not so much in lean people. Um, right. Of course, There's we're talking error, about error athletes. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, folks, that's what we mean by context. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, it's not just a test. And, and um, we'll talk about other methods in a minute, but I, there's a point I want to get into which um, I, I, would, I would hate to have missed it. Is this idea of a percentage? Um, yeah. And we have to ask ourselves, percentage of what? Um, it, you know, Dex, a percentage body fat um, is not the same thing from a DEXA as a percentage body fat from ADP, from BIA, skin folds. And yet there's this universal familiarity with percentage. You know, what body fat percentage are you? Um, right. and, and one assumes that one was tested at X percent body fat on a DEXA six months ago. Then they go into their gym and, you know, they, they get a BIA done and it tells them they're another percentage body fat. And there is no way you should be comparing one percentage to the other. We Obviously, you can't compare the methodologies. But that percentage, what, 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 what are your thoughts about the percentage? I, this is where I think um, relative values become very important. You know, and I think it's not just that's why I was saying earlier, what exactly is the difference between 20 and 21 percent, you know, in terms of inherent error of one percent or more? You know, the question becomes, in most cases, I think having a range is fairly useful. And I think that being tested the same way each time becomes very useful. So you're right. Like, I, I think one of the biggest limitations in the body composition area is if you're um if you're basically methodology hopping where you do it one way, one time, one way, another, one way, another, and you're trying to compare those values, you know, and there's no question. And I know you, you've been doing this for quite a while. So I think you'll appreciate the statement, but there's a point at which you've been doing this long enough and you've done everything from whether it's skin folds, to hydrostatic weighing, to DEXA, to bod pod, <clears throat> you get a pretty good idea for what say, for example, 12% in a male looks like. Yeah. And they come back and they tell you that they had it tested at the gym. They're like, I'm 4%. <laughs> and you're looking at them and you're like, no, you're not. I mean, you just visually know there's just no way. And I see this in I, – I see this with females quite a bit too where, you know, I don't know if it's an effort to make them feel better like their program's working, but they get some absurd numbers where you're looking at them going, no, you're actually not even close to that. That's, that's physiologically nearly impossible. Um, so I think that because there's so much misinformation, I think people have to understand that the percentages to me represent a way to gauge your progress. Mm. Because if I do a certain test in your, let's say I'm working with a female athlete, she's 18% body fat and her weight stays the same the next time I test her and she's down to say 16% body fat. Do I feel comfortable saying that she's made a positive difference and probably gained some lean mass of her body weight? And yes, I do. Can I attach an absolute number to that? No, I don't feel comfortable doing that, but I can say within <laughs> this degree of certainty, um, here's the changes you're making. And it's very useful to track changes more so than needing these absolute definitive numbers more than anything else. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that's the most important thing is one's ability to have faith in the reproducibility of the test. Yes. And don't get bogged down with what the number means. Just obviously, if, if the percentage of the number's going up, that is a different scenario than if it's staying the same. Yeah, and um, here's the way I look at it, Laurent. I, yeah. I, I try to look at it this way. is 
the numbers mean something, right? But are we sure that 21% is 21%? No, of course not. We haven't done an autopsy. We don't know that. But what I want to do first and foremost is I want to use a method that has been shown to correlate well with whatever our direct standards have been or our most reasonable indirect standards. So in other words, what sets the bar? Then from there, I want to choose the one of those that has the best reproducibility so that I can say, okay, within this reasonable degree of error, I can assume that from time to time, I'm not going to fluctuate massively just because of the error in this method. So I want something that certainly from a validity standpoint has strong evidence, nothing's perfect, but something that has strong evidence and then something that's highly reproducible and tells me what I think it means. You know, and, and you know, does it mean what you think it means? And I think that that's where those those criteria come in because that is what's going to help you more accurately track changes over time that you need to look at. Absolutely. And to go back to my analogy of the GPS and the satellites for mm-hmm. body composition in, in my practice, not, not in the university lab um, where we have to control variables and so on, but in a practice, um, I'm actually going to test more than one thing for body composition. So I'll do okay, sure. I'll do body composition via um, skin folds using the Isaac method, but I'm also... Mm-hmm. I'm also potentially going to do DEXA, and I'm also um, going to potentially do bioimpedance. I'm also, um, I have played with uh, the ultrasound method. Uh, I might be doing okay. that. Um, and I'm also um, thinking about buying a, um, a 3D scanning system. Ah, um, yeah, one of the newer technologies is out there right now. Yep. Yeah, which I think is awesome, but on, on, on under no, you know, I should be under no illusion that any one of those methods is, is necessarily, you know, the the only method I should use, and I think, I think it's it's that idea that maybe you have a methodology for um, reproducibility. Um, you've got another. Well, they should all be reproducible, but you've got one that's particularly relevant for that. Um, but it might not be the one that tells you what you need to know. What what you need to know might just be what you can see. Yeah. Right. I mean, actually, we should not underestimate what we can see in terms of body composition testing, our eyes, photographs. Um, you know, it depends what we're trying to do, which is, it, I think actually um, all folks have to do is, is go back to the uh, test don't guess episode because we talked all about this stuff. Um, so right. to, to bring us uh, uh, to back to the point of this podcast. So with, with body composition uh, testing, we've got our reference or criteria methods, which is the sort of laboratory-based methods. There's various methods from medical imaging to slightly more practical methods like possibly DEXA, um, air displacement plethysmography like um, Bob Pod, um, yeah. underwater weighing, which is kind of going out of fashion now. Um, well, it's so burdensome to, to maintain a tank. I mean, we've got yeah. one here. We never used it once we got the Bob Pod because mm. it was just, it was a pain in the butt. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I, I know. Um, so look, once we, so we, we've got those methodologies. Um, then what we go to is um, f- is tests where we're taking surrogate markers to yeah. um, then um, try and estimate, um, you know, based on um, how they've been validated against these these reference uh, criterion methods. So right. what, what are the more common methods that are out there? Well, I think probably, well, okay, so I would probably say there's two that are most common. That's going to be skin folds and BIA or bioelectrical impedance analysis. Um, 
skinfolds <laughs> skinfolds get hated on a lot, but I tell you what, they're not bad. You know, I mean, it's um, especially now there's a couple criteria with skinfold that I think people have to adhere to. One is um, experimenter or tester skill is very, very important with this. So you need to really know how to take a good skinfold. You need to know ahead of time what formula you're going to use because that formula is going to dictate what the skinfold site, the skinfold site is what the direction of the skinfold is and how that factors into the overall equation. So I think you need to adhere to those uh, criteria very, very closely as you go into this. And the other thing too is I strongly recommend choosing um, a skinfold formula that uses both upper and lower body skinfolds because of fat distribution differences, especially between males and females and things like that. Um, but I think those are very, very important. Um, I, you know, I think that repetition with skinfold testing is critical. I think you do need to be very comfortable with doing it and be very consistent in your approach. Um, I'm a big fan of being overly conservative with two agreement, uh, two consecutive measures agreeing with each other. Um, I, I think that's very important within maybe one to two millimeters of each other at most uh, to know that you're getting the same skinfold twice. Mm. But but ultimately, skinfold, you know, there are better calipers than others. I personally like... Uh, uh, I like the, the Lang calipers. Um, uh, Harpenden also makes a real nice set. Um, but things that maintain their their pressure throughout an entire range is very good. One problem with skin folds is if you're ever working with somebody who is extremely obese, um, you might embarrass the crap out of them because there is a good chance that the calipers do not open wide enough to encompass some of their skin folds. Mm. That is a bad situation to be in. Be aware of that ahead of time. Uh, and that's where the familiarity, I think, comes in. Um, but I think, you know, when you test the person, you know, so if it's an athlete, when is it in relation to practice or training? You don't want to do it right after, obviously, um, that's going to influence the results. Uh, you mentioned the same thing with carbohydrate or glycogen supercompensation, uh, where you're getting a difference in the compressibility. If somebody's not well hydrated, that's going to change the compressibility of the skin fold as well. Um, if it's a woman taking the measures, please, please, please trim your nails first because if they're really sharp and long, it hurts when you grab the skin fold. So I think that's important. Um, you know, so it's little things like that that I think are really useful when it comes to, to skin folds. And I do think they have their place. They're fairly easy to do, but I think you need to be really, really good at them to get consistent results. Absolutely. Um, um, listen, Sean, I, I mean, I feel quite strongly about, <coughs> um, <laughs> excuse me about the value of skinfold testing, but only in mm -hmm. the right hands, in the same way that yes. you could give anyone a scalpel, but it doesn't make them a plastic surgeon. You know, one's a murderer. <laughs> right, yeah. And one's a very gifted plastic surgeon. I think the same thing is, you know, um, with body composition testing, um, just because you've gone and bought a pair of Lang or Harpenden calipers does not make you... Um, uh, uh, no. an expert at body composition testing. Um, Not by any stretch of the imagination. You are exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I I mean, that's another podcast in itself. Um, but since you're an expert in, um, you know, uh, endocrinology-related uh, uh, aspects of this, there is, of course, a movement where they're using skinfold testing to determine uh, hormonal sort of you know disorders and problems sure. within a personal training setting and then usually it's um supplements or whatever to resolve that i mean in terms of evidence the science that's out there do you think that that that's something that is um 
is appropriate or uh, maybe it's a little bit in the fairyland uh, right now? I think I, I, I think it, again, it depends on how it's used and by who, but I think starting to get into body composition as a, as a, as a marker for some of these things, I just, I feel like there's too many other good biomarkers we already have that tell us more of that story than anything else. That being said, you know, if you are tracking certain hormonal fluctuations already and you're starting to see shifts in lean mass maintenance or gain versus body fat changes, could that be a good backup that, hey, yeah, metabolically, we do have a problem here? Then I think in that case, it's a it's a nice um, it's a nice add on. Mm. But, you know, do I think we're 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 there yet? Um, I guess that'd be a bit of a stretch for me right now. Yeah, and anyway, it's sort of a scope of practice issue, isn't it? I mean, unless it, unless you're a PhD researcher and it's your area, maybe you've got a reason for doing this. But it, unless you're a medical person, you shouldn't be trying to fix people's hormones. Um, yeah. Um, I, you know. Anyway, that's another subject for another day. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a good topic. For yeah. You. So, but I, you know, I, I personally am trained by the Isaac method, um, mm-hmm. and um, that does uh, uh, validate quite nicely against uh, the, the criterion method but boy does it take a lot of training and a lot of experience and a lot of gadgets and toys and various other things um so right. get, getting away from uh, uh skinfold testing which i will come back to briefly um what about bia then so you talked about bia yeah so i'll admit i um i mean up front i'll just be honest i'm not a fan of bia especially if i'm working with athletes um bia it is you know if you think about it it's it's entire calculation is essentially based on electrical conductivity which is based on water and electrolyte content mm. so even now now obviously almost every method we've talked about can be influenced by hydration there's no question the problem with BIA is even modest fluctuations in hydration or electrolyte content can fairly dramatically impact the results and I think the other problem too is it also depends on the BIA analyzer used. You know, so many people are relying on either the handheld ones or the, the, the scale-based ones where you just stand on it. Here's the problem when you're just measuring at one of those two points is electrical conductance takes the path of least resistance. And so what happens is <clears throat> the assumption that the whole body is functioning as a full cylinder in this case is not very accurate. As a matter of fact, even standing foot to foot on a scale your electrical transmission is primarily through the lower body. That is going to miss some of the things going on from an upper body uh, fat standpoint. Same thing with holding just the upper body um, uh, analyzer. If you really want to have some fun, if you have the upper body analyzer, try it sitting down, standing up with your arms fully straight, with your arms slightly bent. You can actually get different numbers in each of the positions. It's kind of fun. I have my class do it. Um, So for BIA, you know, I think that um, it's a convenient method from a population testing standpoint. Uh, you know, it's fairly commonly used in some of the nutritional literature, um, especially in, in larger sample sizes because it is quick, it is convenient. Um, but if I had to choose, if I'm working with an athlete, given what some of the other methods are that are available, I would put that very low on the list. Not to say that it couldn't be used, only that it would most definitely not be my go-to. Yeah, and, you know, again, as I referenced earlier, you know, a lot of these gadgets and methodologies um, ultimately come up with that damn percentage. <laughs> yep, that's right. And, and, and that, that's something that I think is a problem. I mean, it literally induces severe states of anxiety in people where, particularly with, with the home scale 
you know, you stand on a scale and it tells you what your body fat is. I mean, that will instigate a series of behavioral problems that ultimately so, increases the amount of alcohol and chocolate someone consumes. <laughs> um, sometimes simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, well, now that I mention that, now that I mention that, um, yeah. we should quickly, because actually, uh, this turned out to be a lot, you know, we, we, we're, we're going to run out of time rapidly. Yeah, sorry say. about that. No, that's all right. Um, the, 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 this information um, has an impact. Um, it, it, it helps inform what we do. And of course, we've discussed um, how much caution we should have in the information and how we interpret it, because it may not be as accurate as we think. Um, you know, think of the quality of the testing and think of the context in which we're using this information. But also, we need to think about how this information is passed on to other people. Um, yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? You know what? I'm going to give you my thoughts by giving you an example. Mm. <clears throat> so... Uh, a couple years ago, we had um, one of the players from the women's soccer team uh, was really trying to, really wanted to come into camp in shape. <clears throat> so at the end of the year, at the end of the season, um, we did her body composition. And she was, I believe, 22%. And she said, uh, I said, look, I think a good target for you would probably be about 18% when we look at international standards and <clears throat> what we're seeing with your lean mass and your speed and stuff like that. And, and, you know, she wanted to come down a little bit. She knew she was maybe carrying just a little bit extra, <clears throat> but not by much, right? Or at least that was it. So I said, you know, 22 to 18. And she goes, <clears throat> excuse me, by the way. She said, uh, so what is that? I need to lose a bit, like 10 pounds. <clears throat> and I looked at her. I go, let's do the math. So we sit down. You go through the calculations. It was like five and a quarter pounds yeah. as long as she maintained lean muscle. My point in all this is that if you just hand people this percentage – and they go, well, I want to go from here to here. And they give no information or get no information about what that entails. There's a big problem because there's a massive disconnect between what it takes to move that needle, you know, in terms of making those changes. So I think that in terms of how we prolay it, one of the policies we have here at Rutgers is when we do body comp testing, um, the coaches and the athletes get ranges. So in other words, you, you're falling, you fell within this range, which is classified as, for example, optimal, normal, slightly, slightly overweight, or, you know, however we, I can't remember. It depends on the sport, the way we classify it. But anyway, what it prevents them from doing is just focusing on a single number. And it allows us to give feedback on whether or not they maintained muscle mass in season, whether they put on muscle mass in the off season, whatever it is. And I think that the the information that goes along with it in terms of how to make the changes, hey, what what are some of your behaviors that are going into this? What are things you need to modify in order to make these changes in body composition, whether it's gaining muscle, whether it's losing fat, whatever it is. I think that has to be a part of the education process because just giving them a number and going, and here you go, honestly to me is just asking for trouble. Because they don't do it the smart way to go about making these changes or even understand what that number means. You know, and I, the one thing I found, I don't know if you run into this, but I find that there is a massive disconnect between um, what body composition values really mean. In other words, athletes tend to think that the norm is much, much lower than it really is. Yeah, yeah. Or females like by, think by four be and five percent in some cases. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying, and females think they should be using the male reference range. That's right. Mm. Yep. 
Yeah, and and you just it, it's like I said, I, I think you know maybe one of the reasons that I love what I do uh, and the fact that you know first and foremost I'm a researcher, but I love working with the teams we work with, and and we get a lot of research out of that too. To be honest, I love the athlete interaction because I love the opportunity for education to teach them about what this all means. Yeah. You know, okay, so what does it mean if your VO2 max is this and your ventilatory threshold is this? What do these body composition values that actually represent? How do you make modifications? How do you prioritize? Like to me, that's probably one of the most rewarding parts about it because it's not just handing them a number. And it goes back to what we talked about the last time we talked, which is it's a means to an end, not the end in itself. Yeah. You know, and I think if you don't use the numbers right, um, that's where you run into problems. Well, speaking of ends, um, I think we should uh, we should draw this one to a close. I think there's a lot of thought-provoking um, little tidbits and um, golden nuggets came out of our conversation today. I think it's really important for those, particularly the, the, the less experienced researchers and um, practitioners out there, um, you know, the, these are the things that we've learnt. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I can think of many bad experiences of, uh, particularly with BIA, um, right. where people have, have have come in and then they've come back and you know they're, they're they're what we call in the UK trousers. Of course, you call them pants, but that's another conversation. We'll save that one for drinks uh, at the conference. But, but anyway, effectively, they've clearly lost. They clearly lost a bunch of weight. But the BIA, the BIA told them that they got fatter. And it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do, that damn number will haunt you. Um, so you just got to be really careful how you use these tools um, in your toolbox. And like all tools, they, they need careful consideration, they need to be looked after. And sometimes you should not use those tools and um, you need to think very carefully about what all this means. Um, and, I and I definitely think in closing, I would say that the one critical consideration, like you said, for for researchers, for practitioners, whatever it is, is be meticulous and consistent in mm. what, what you do. So in other words, as long as you control all the factors you can, at least you are more confident that the numbers you're getting are actually meaningful numbers rather than something that is an arbitrary outcome because you did something wrong. And I think that consistency is very, very important. And and no one method is beyond reproach. No one method is perfect. But I think understanding the tool to use for the question you're asking is critical. And just because somebody didn't use DEXA doesn't mean it was, wasn't a good study. And just because somebody did doesn't mean the results are accurate either. So I think that those are things to keep in mind as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, listen, thank you, Sean. Um, I, uh, I know folks will have enjoyed this podcast and also uh, to remind them to check out episode 58 where we discussed the broader concept of testing and not guessing, um, particularly in, uh, in sports science, um, particularly applied aspects of sports science. Um, Sean will be here in the UK for those of you that are able to uh, come uh, to ISSN London um, uh, conference on April 16th, 17th at the University of Middlesex where Sean will be delivering a lecture on physique versus sports nutrition. Are they contradictory? Um, we've got two days of awesome lectures including uh, myself and my colleague Scott Robinson at Guru Performance. We'll yep. be presenting our latest uh, research um, on a new study we're about to publish um, that relates to carbohydrate periodization in an elite triathlete. So I'm looking forward to doing that. 
Um, but you can check out the information and register via sportsnutritionsociety.org and just click on conferences on the ISSM website and um, you can organise that. Um, also, um, on the page for this podcast, I will put some links to um, your uh, various um, uh, your website, ResearchGate, etc. Sean, um, but, but but quickly uh, for those that want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter? Uh, it's pretty easy. It's at Sean Art. It's S H A W N A R E N T, and our Center for Health and Human Performance is also on Facebook as well. Awesome. Yeah, well, like I said, I'll, I'll put all those links and I'll try cool. and find some other references uh, that I used to research for this uh, podcast today. I'll put those on, on the page for the podcast. Um, if you want to learn more um, about um, our own educational programs at the Guru Performance Institute, um, simply go to guruperformance.com where you can check out our short course uh, CPDCUs, which have just been uh, accredited actually by National Strength and Conditioning Association. Uh, uh, we've got others about to accredit, and of course, for some time now, we've been accredited by um, for CPD by the Sports and Exercise Nutrition Register and British Dietetic Association. So it's well worth your time to check those out. And of course, for our bigger one-year, uh, one to two-year international ISSM diploma in applied sports sport and exercise nutrition program, check that out also at guruperformance.com. Um, or issndiploma.com and if you want to come and study with me at the University of Middlesex and, and um, join us on the Master of Science and Sport and Exercise Nutrition Program you can also find out about that at guruperformance.com and follow the links to Middlesex University um, so thanks thanks again Sean for your time today I look pleasure. forward to seeing thanks you uh, in a few weeks mate see you in a few weeks so we're uh, drinking scotch hopefully so oh, I'll Matt, well, see you then we'll have a few and um Thank you all for listening. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you very soon.